Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, I'm your host, Nate Larkin, and for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time forever, I am solo at the mic. There's no co-pilot this week. And that's for the very simple reason that uh, uh, my trusty co-host, the Admiral Aaron Porter, has caught the plague. Yes, he has been down with COVID ever since, uh, oh, now for, I guess, a couple of weeks. I got to tell you, I was very concerned about him for a while. We we actually had to cancel two podcast recording sessions because he couldn't even drag himself out of bed for very long, much less put together a coherent thought, just fighting fatigue and brain fog and all the stuff that goes along with it. Uh, I'm pleased to say that he is on the road to recovery and he'll be back by the time we do the next episode. But in the meantime... Uh, we have uh, we have an interview here that we recorded a couple weeks ago, a great one. It's been a long time since we posted a show, so I'm going to go ahead and do the intro for this one. Uh, Allie and I, by the way, are in Florida, still in Florida, been here for a very long time, extended our trip uh, because Allie was fortunate enough to be able to get the COVID vaccine two doses, four weeks apart. So we're staying for that second dose. I've been tossed out of my normal routine and I've been kind of on perpetual vacation, which I have found brings uh, challenges of its own. When I have that much unstructured time, uh, I'm just not face-to-face meeting with people in the way I'm accustomed to. I'm outside of my familiar surroundings. There is still this voice in the back of my head that says, uh, you know, when you're on vacation, you are effectively in Vegas. And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. All rules are off. Uh, So I've been having to go upstream against that inclination now for, oh, gosh, how long has it been? Six weeks, six long weeks. Um. Well, yesterday I was listening to an audiobook about meditation uh, from a guy who talked about this strange uh, phenomenon that seems very, very common to anybody who begins a meditation practice. He said it's, it's very, very common for people to get started, make good progress, really feel the benefits. Life gets a lot better. And at, But then, and he said this happened to him, about three months in, uh, life was going so well that he stopped meditating. And it's as though the gains that he'd accumulated uh, evaporated quite quickly, and then he was back to the old normal rather than the new normal. He says that, you know, it, you know, the same thing happens. Gosh, has it happened to you where you've, you've gone, you've started a new fitness routine, you're going to the gym, whatever, and you get feeling so good that you stop going to the gym? That ever happened? You start a new diet, uh, you stick to it for a while, you lose the weight, you feel so good that you stop paying attention to what you're eating and then you put the pounds back on? Gosh, I've certainly done that. 
I experienced the same phenomenon last year when it came to alcohol. I, I, uh, I swore off alcohol uh, on the, around the 1st of January last year, not because I fit the classic description of the alcoholic, not because I'd ever been sloppy drunk or gotten a DUI, but uh, I was becoming aware uh, of that I was paying a physical price, a mental, emotional price, uh, not a, I don't, a spiritual price directly. Uh, certainly drinking's not a sin, but I was depending upon alcohol to an unhealthy degree. Uh, I really came to believe that life would be better for me in a lot of ways if I stopped drinking alcohol. So, uh, you know, read some books, uh, made the commitment, stopped drinking for three months, and man, it, uh, life did get better in a lot of ways. Uh, I became much more productive and efficient and clear-headed and emotionally present. It was wonderful. And I got feeling so good that um, I, I started drinking again. Isn't that crazy? Uh, it's been a while since I was in that cycle on porn, but I do know that I followed that cycle uh, often in porn. Um, and I wonder... You know, have you experienced the same thing? And if so, what is the way out? How do we escape that cycle? And how do we experience again, gain again, begin to cultivate and enjoy again a degree of self-control? Well, we actually have a guest this week in a conversation that Aaron participated in and did his usual stellar job. Uh, we interviewed a wonderful guy named Drew Dick. Um, this conversation's been waiting for you to hear it. I'm not going to withhold it any longer. Stick with us. I'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, we are privileged to have with us on the show this week uh, a guy who I've got to say is the king of the inventive title. He's a speaker. He's a writer. He is also the managing editor of Leadership Journal for Christianity Today, author of books such as um, Generation X Christian, uh, Yawning at Tigers, and the one I really hope we can get to talk about today, your future self will thank you. Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, a guide for sinners, quitters, and procrastinators. Drew Dick is with us. Hi, Drew. Thank you for joining hey, us. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for complimenting me on my weird titles. Nate um, loves titles of books, by the way. So that is a <laughs> high compliment from him. Well, and I put in there sinners, quitters, and procrastinators because I figure that kind of gets just about everyone. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, Someone I, said, I, well, I'm not a sinner, quitter, or procrastinator. I said, that's okay because it's for liars too. So that's perfect. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, when I read the title of your book, 
I was very curious to meet you. And I have to say, just in the few brief moments we've been talking, I, I think I like you. Oh, good. But, but whenever someone says, here's the secrets to, or here's the 21 irrefutable <laughs> laws of, I start to think, what's this guy trying to sell me? Well, let me let me respond to that by saying I have this one weird trick that'll change your life forever. <laughs> uh, in- <laughs> Perfect. I hear you, man. It's a, yeah, little little uh, self helpy, clickbaity sort of stuff, right? I'm blaming the marketers. I, they push me in that direction. Okay, <laughs> so, all right, you all right. You, you you you're gonna get time to defend the thesis, but what brought you to write a book on self control? Did you just look around and said, "Man, all these people are out of control"? Basically, yeah. And I got tired of people coming up to me and saying, "Drew, you are." just the perfect example of self-discipline and self-control. What is your secret? No, that's, <laughs> that's a lie. Um, it's actually kind of the opposite. So originally, um, I, I wasn't setting out to write a book. I was just kind of uh, had come to a realization about my own life that I had uh, a lack of self-control. And it's not that I was doing anything particularly horrendous, but I just realized like every time I would actually around this time of year, I would make New Year's resolutions. And I'd be like all psyched up like, oh yeah, this is the year, man. Um, I'm going to be all skinny and spiritual and I'm going to do all these awesome things every day. And then I'd fall flat on my face, of course. And I'd just be like, what's the problem here? Like, it's not a lack of inspiration. I really wanted to do it. Not a lack of information. I knew what I had to do. I even had good plans to do it. But ultimately, I had to come to the realization, unsettling though it was, that I simply lacked self-control. So, I started reading up on the topic, reading Christian books and non-Christian books and the secular literature from sociologists and scientists. And, and I, I found a lot of things that were quite interesting and helpful. And of course, looking at what the Bible had to say about the topic. And somewhere along the way, I, the light bulb went off and I went, hey, maybe there's a book here. Maybe this stuff could be helpful for other people. So that's my hope is that it'll be uh, as helpful for other people as it has been for me. And just in the title, we see you went to two directions here. You went to the Bible, but you also Mm -hmm. decided that your brain science was an important part of it. Was, is that just something you were always interested in or what led you to that? Yeah, I was trying to tick off people on both sides. Uh, no, I, yeah, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I kind of have an approach. I didn't make this up, but what's the expression? All truth is God's truth, right? So if, if you want to understand something about human behavior, um, of course, you know, I want to start with the Bible, see what God has to say about the topic. Um, and But at the same time, I think it makes sense to avail yourself of the pertinent scientific literature on a topic, especially when we're talking about how our brains work on behavioral things, on habits, on these types of things. Um, and what I found, actually, like when I would read studies about habits or willpower, self-regulation, is that really... There, there was no conflict between what the Bible had to say about these topics and, and what the science had to say. Like, for instance, you know, one of the big early aha moments I had came when reading about the topic of willpower. And about 20, actually about 30 years ago, I guess, um, researchers did this landmark study where they found out something about willpower that was interesting. Basically, they found out that it was a finite resource. Uh, it, it runs out. It's depletable. You might like to think that you can kind of hold off against temptation forever or do something difficult indefinitely. But what happens is that you actually run out of that willpower and, and rather quickly. And then I was thinking about like other um, uh, passages from scripture 
where you know we're described as these finite fallen creatures uh, that that need accountability and support and God's help, and, and we're told to to flee temptation rather than stand and fight it, right? Because God knows that we're finite, that we have limited willpower, that our flesh is weak, and so just time and again, I saw, I would like read scientific uh, literature that just made a lot of sense about how how Scripture described us. Um, and so I didn't really see a conflict there. I thought they actually complemented each other quite nicely. I want to mm. get back to that scientific literature in a, in a second. But when I saw self-control, I immediately thought, okay, this is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Yes. And one of my big pet peeves is when we're taught how to manufacture by our flesh <laughs> the fruit that is supposed to come from the Spirit, which yeah. tends to point towards this is not going to end well. <laughs> and, right. and so there has to be a component of surrender. I, I mean, the only yeah. way I can engage the fruit of the spirit is to surrender something of my flesh and create space for the spirit and to yes. ask for that help. So how does that fit in with all of this? Yeah, that was like um, a paradox that kind of that, that I realized was there at the center of this topic early on, right? Because, okay, if you read the secular books about self-control, especially like best-selling self-help books, it's this sort of, you know, do it yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, employ this life hack and this trick, and, you know, you, you can develop the self-control all on your own. And I realized pretty quickly as a Christian, that wasn't a Christian vision of the topic, right? First of all, mm. self-control isn't just about making you like super rich or famous or shredded or whatever, so you can look down on everyone else and go, I'm the best, right? Self-control is, like you said, a fruit of the spirit. It's something that that's supposed to make us more like Christ so that we can serve God and, and love others, right? That's the function of self-control. It's not just to, to make us super successful or something. So that's one thing. And then what you got at is it's not something we can just generate. We can't pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. And, and it's kind of counterintuitive because it's self-control, but in scripture, it, there's, there's um, divine agency to it, right? And it is a fruit of the spirit. So I think of it like this, in the same way that a plant or a tree has to be connected to the ground, right, in order to bear fruit. So we have to be connected to God. There has to be that vertical connection to God if we hope to see this fruit uh, flourish in our lives. Uh, and that's that's true of all the fruit of the spirit, especially, I think, of self-control. Uh, because if, if we're not communing with God, if we're not fostering that relationship, uh, I think at least from a Christian perspective, it's impossible to, to develop self-control because it is something that the, the spirit produces in our life. Now, th there are a couple ways to fall off this horse though, because some people have the ad attitude that like, listen, I can kind of kick back. It's a pleasure cruise towards holiness. I don't have to expend any effort. Um, you know, if, if I just, you know, let go and let God, Jesus take the wheel sort of attitude. <laughs> um, and yet all throughout scripture, we see these commands to struggle, to strive after godliness, to fight the good fight to kill the flesh, you know, so there is a role for us, you know, and yet at the same time, we can't do it on our own. We need God's spirit to empower us. And so it's this kind of mystical balance where, you know, and I think the key is to strive with God's spirit instead of against God's spirit. And we, when we do that, he empowers us to live as he wants us to live. And of course that requires self-control. I, I love, you've already, you've already tweaked my mind in that by taking all of those things that I think, oh, I need to work on this. I need to do that more. I need to do that less. So many of those things are so easily detached from my spiritual life. 
those, those are just things that are good for me, for my health, for my whatever. And by bringing all of those under the umbrella of togetherness with God, I'm in this with you. You're my dad. You want me to experience this life in dynamic and abundant ways. So, okay, I need to lose some weight. That's <laughs> something for us to do together. Yes. And that I acknowledge God in the process. That, And then if I don't, like you said, the fruit, if I succeed at self-control but leave God out of it, the fruit of that is going to be pride. It's. Mm. I, I hope that nobody succeeds at self-control apart from it being a fruit of the Spirit because yeah. there's you nothing better at the end. Yeah, you so become I, a Pharisee, you get legalistic, you get judgmental. And that's such an important point you made. Like, okay, so even when it comes, because we we tend to kind of bifurcate our lives and go, okay, well, I've got my spiritual goals over here, reading my Bible, I don't know, praying, uh, loving people. And then I got my, my, you know, just regular goals. That is, I need to drop a few pounds, be more productive at work. But really, we should view them all under a spiritual umbrella, uh, First of all, because I think we're commanded to in Scripture. Second, researchers, they've done some fascinating work on what they call sanctified goals. And these aren't like Christian researchers, just kind of regular secular researchers talk about the power of sanctified goals. And what they mean by that is when you have any goal, no matter how mundane, if you attach ultimate or spiritual significance to that goal, you will have a far greater likelihood of reaching it. So take the goal you mentioned, like say you want to drop some pounds. And say your motivation for doing that is, well, I want to look better. I want to fit into some old jeans, whatever. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you actually change your view of that goal and go, you know what? I want to, I want to lose some weight because I want to be around for my children longer. I want to have more energy and vitality to pursue the call that God has placed on my life. Um, my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to treat it well. If you kind of, kind of re-envision it in those terms, you will, and this is borne out by the research over and over again, you'll have a greater um, uh, success in reaching those goals and attaining them because they've become sanctified goals. Uh, and so that's that's crucial to do. And it can feel a little artificial and silly, uh, but I think it's very important. Nate, I cut you off earlier. What were you going to ask? Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask uh, Drew about the role that collaboration can or should be. Hmm. Uh, play in the development of self-control. Uh, I was really inspired last year by James Clear's best-selling book on habits. There's some great... Yes, Atomic uh, Habits. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but, but here's what I... I think I'm a better man for having read the book and having uh, implemented some of his recommendations. But what I have found is that I have run out of steam already on some of those projects that I committed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it seems to me, and uh, I didn't see it until just now, uh, uh, and I've got to thank you for opening my eyes to this. I think what it, I think there is this uh, presupposition, this unspoken assumption that this is something that you can do by yourself. Just if you've got the information, you know, uh, James will show you how to do it. <laughs> Focus. You can do it on your own. And and um, so I actually uh, did not rely as much upon my uh, brothers in the body of Christ in some of these goals as I have on uh, the development of self-control in other areas. 
specifically uh, recovery from porn addiction and sex addiction. There, I knew I couldn't do that on my own. Mm -hmm. I had to rely on others. Uh, but I somehow got it into my head that there are other changes that I can make all by myself. And um, I do get uh, – so I'm grateful now for this. That, that uh, I neglected the spiritual dimension, and I also can see that I did not really – uh, seek the help and assistance and support of brothers. And really, I, I, I fell back on an old habit of self-reliance, and it didn't freaking work. Yep. No, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is a huge part of this. Um, and that's right. We we tend to think, well, okay, for some huge like besetting sin that I have or or yeah. say when it's a drug addiction or something like that, we, we know, right? I mean, we see people like the, the person who says, Hey, listen, I've, I've been clean for a year. I'm no longer an alcoholic. You go, Oh, oh yeah. watch out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. I don't need to go to the meetings anymore. Uh, that's the person who's going to have a relapse. Um, and, but that's true of any area of life, you know, whatever you're trying to, what, if, if it's a sin or a vice that you're trying to, um, eradicate or, or conquer, or whether it's something you're trying to do, that's new, that's hard, even if it's not like a sin issue per se, um, the more you can involve uh, brothers, uh, sisters, friends, whatever, people that are going to come alongside you and help you, the greater your chances of of success are going to be. And it's interesting, too, the, the literature on this is it was fascinating to me in the sense when it comes to seeking out that group of people that are going to help you. What you want is you don't want people that are living in total failure. Right. So say mm -hmm. you're an alcoholic, you, you don't want the, the buddies that are going to the bar and getting getting hammered every weekend. That's not the group that's going to help you. They're going to drag you down. Nor do you want the, the group of friends that have never touched a drop of alcohol in their life because they can't relate. What yeah. you want is a group of fellow strugglers who, who are making progress that are pressing ahead um, in whatever it is. Say, say it's exercise. Like, don't you know, you want to start running and you're a couch potato. Don't go find marathoners to hang out with. You know, you want the the guy down the block who kind of plods around uh, the block a little bit to help you out and keep you accountable. Uh, and so, no, that's crucial. And then when it comes to like spiritual life, I mean, I think I was starting to see passages in scripture with new eyes when it's like, don't forsake the gathering together, uh, you know, spurring each other on to love and good works. That is essential. That kind of community is just essential to just give us reminders, inspiration, oh, encouragement, come on. accountability. It's true. That's that's only talking about Sunday morning church service. <laughs> well, it has to happen at any other I know, time. I know. It's going to happen in church. Yes. Don't, don't start twisting scriptures to mean what you want. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. Busted. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, as uh, sarcastic as that is, really, that's bringing. The, the sacred into Tuesday mornings running around the block with another guy. If that gets to right. be a part of the not forsaking that gathering together. Yeah. Yeah. It's and sanctified. we're just communal creatures. We need any sort of behavioral change. We need each other. We need that support. Very. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm trying to think there are a few things and obviously some of these habits you want to institute in your life are going to be things that you do, you know, by yourself, say it's morning devotions or prayer or something like that. But even there, it's it's great to have someone who's going to check in with you and and uh, see how you're doing, so you can encourage each other. That's just the way we're wired. Tell me what you found about how your brain is working for or against you in this whole process. What's happening there? 
Yeah, well, it's it's mainly against you, unfortunately. <laughs> I read one book that the title was like "What What Your Brain Likes and Why You Should Do the Opposite." Um, so, <laughs> you know, your your brain first of all, it's lazy, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. uh it's looking for the the path of least resistance. Um, and and it only has, like I mentioned, so much so much um willpower and and sort of ability to do things, which is in your executive region, your brain in the front, um, and. And so that's why, you know, back to what you were talking about that one book, and I have a couple chapters in my book about habit formation, because I think that's a crucial part of this. The important thing about habits and habits are just automatic routines, right? Things that you don't have to think about, you don't have to expend much energy in doing them. And the re- reason they're so crucial is because your brain is lazy. And when you're doing something that's new or difficult, you expend a lot of that precious willpower. But if you can do something consistently, through a certain window of time, and, and researchers disagree. Some say it's like 30 days. Some say for more complex tasks, it's like 66 days. But if you can persevere through that window of ham- habit formation, then what happens is the difficulty goes down. You're conscious, uh, you don't consciously have to exert effort when you're doing it. And then it just becomes part of your life. Like the guy who wakes up and runs 10 miles every morning, he's not slapping himself in the face and going, okay, come on, I got to do it. Oh man, this is hard. Oh man, I got to muster the willpower, right? It's just a habit at that point. You're just doing it automatically. Um, and that's the goal for all kinds of, of behaviors. It's not to kind of out grit temptation at every turn, but you want to train your brain uh, to institute these healthy habits and break the bad ones so that you're, you're kind of on autopilot a little bit and you can free up your willpower to tackle other habits. Um, mm. So that's kind of the goal. And, and your, your brain is... You know, and this really was um, interesting to me when I thought about like my use of social media, right? Our brain craves those little dopamine hits. So when we're on social media, we see someone liked our post or, you know, shared our podcast or whatever it is, um, we get a little a little dopamine hit. Um, and, and we can be unfortunately trained, you know, by all kinds of behaviors, some that aren't, aren't very good to kind of seek that out. And of course, this is a huge deal when it comes to pornography, um, or, or shopping addictions or, you know, all these things. Um, and, and the weird, here's the weird thing about dopamine though. People, it's, people have a misunderstanding. They think it's the feel, it's called the feel good chemical, but it actually isn't a feel good chemical. In fact, it, it really only makes you anticipate, um, uh, something. It doesn't give you the, the, feeling of being satiated. So when you see like, you know, a delicious cookie through a window at a bakery, your dopamine is just really being released. Um, and that's why, but you don't necessarily get to, uh, culminate that experience by eating the cookie. And often, you know, people like for, for social media, for instance, you go on there and, and you're, it's, it's hitting that dopamine center of your brain, but often you come away and you don't feel totally satisfied either. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, you feel frustrated in fact, because mm-hmm. you're, you're being aroused, but not fulfilled. Right. And so it's really important to be aware of that and limit your use of the things that are just, you know, promising, but not delivering on pleasure. Yeah, I, I've heard that the same is true of pornography. Uh, mm. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've erased consummation from the dictionary. It's all just dopamine. <laughs> it's all go. the lead up. Hey, what do you say to a guy? And I was just talking to my daughter yesterday about this, that there are a couple areas of her life where she's had a stop. 
and she has some fear and anxiety keeping her from starting to develop a couple habits. Hmm. And the fact that she has no momentum, because like you said, once you start getting momentum and you see, oh, okay, I can do this, and your brain starts figuring out how to get over the humps, uh, it, it becomes easier. But what do you say to any of us who are at the, at the dead stop place to oh, yeah. get those mm. wheels rolling? Yeah. Well, it really varies. You know, I think the, the reason you need to get to is why have you hit that dead end? And I can speak from experience. Sometimes for me, you know, it's, it's caused by multiple failures in the past, right? Where you just, yeah. and you have this sense that I'm a loser. And I think there's a spiritual component to this, not to get too spooky, but when you've been so defeated in an area, especially kind of a spiritual area of your life, I think they're like, you get that whisper in your ear, like, this is who you are. You're always going to screw up. You're just, you know, you're always going to fail. You can't get past this. This is who you are. And, and, and of course, the first thing you need to do is confront those lies with the truth of scripture. No, I'm a child of God. Um, God desires um, holiness and godliness for my life. He wants me to be more like his son, Jesus. You know, that, that kind of thing is crucial. Um, and this is where I think the, the concept, the doctrine of grace uh, intersects with, with the topic of self-control. Uh, a lot of people actually think that grace and self-control are sort of antithetical, like somehow one cancels the other out. Because um, you think, well, okay, if I'm always forgiven by God, then why would I need to exercise self-control right. to live a whole Will life, right? Will not sin so much more abound in the exactly. face of this abundant grace? This is a new concept, clearly. Yeah, no, the Apostle Paul anticipated this. You're absolutely right. He's like, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And his answer is absolutely not. And I find it interesting, like, okay, this one um, study I read about, it was actually diet researchers looking at, at people on diets. And when they would have... Um, they coined a term called the, the what the hell effect, okay? And basically, they saw that dieters, when they had one small indiscretion, say it was eating a piece of cake or one slice mm -hmm. of pizza, mm -hmm. what would often follow that behavior was a full-on binge because they just sure. said, well, what the hell? I've, I've messed up, yeah. right? I've already screwed up. I feel bad right. about myself. Now I'm just going to stuff my face. And I've been there. I mean, it's like... <laughs> um, yeah. And then they also saw kind of the opposite phenomenon, what they called the fresh start effect. And that is this idea where if you perceive that you have a blank slate, that you're starting over, that you've got this clean start, you, your behavior actually improves. And I just thought about that as a Christian, you know, when it comes to whatever area, I think when it comes to, you know, spiritual areas, we, obviously we have the ultimate fresh start. We're forgiven. We're adopted into God's family. We're given this fresh start. And what flows from that isn't a desire to mess up more. It's actually to live a life of godliness, a healthy life. And, um, and so in that way, I think actually grace, once you get it down into your bones, you know that you're forgiven, that God said, you know, it doesn't matter if you messed up a thousand times, I forgive you. And you internalize that grace, then what flows from that, that actually, that becomes the fuel for self-control and living mm. a holy life. This, this speaks wow, so wonderful. deeply to our our habit of judging things as success or failure and, mm. and how little I have a right. And we've talked about it in the past. We talked about Jesus saying, now is the hour when the son of man is glorified. He straight up says, this is the good hour. And then what comes next, everybody that knows him best judges as failure. <laughs> right. And, and when I think of Peter denying Jesus, 
without that, he then wouldn't have his restoration by the Sea of Galilee. And without that, he wouldn't have become the Peter that he was meant to be. So mm. was the moment of denial a failure? If I was to ask Jesus, was mm. he shaking his head in that moment going, God, screwed up again. You're an idiot. <laughs> or did he see more? Mm. And, and yet I am drawn to with everything in my life trying to figure out have I succeeded or failed when it only hinges on that moment's consequence, really. It doesn't have any forward yeah. view. And I'm just that arrogant that's to good. think I can judge it over and over again. Yeah, that's good. And that's where it helps really to take the kind of divine perspective as much as you can anyway and go, yeah, God's looking at the long game here. He knows that I messed up today, but there's a trajectory that he has for my life. We know that. And yeah, Peter's a great example. I think Peter's my favorite character in scripture, except for Jesus, of course. You got to say that. Uh, <laughs> but just because of how relatable he was. And, and when it comes to self-control, I mean, Peter was the, you know, he, the classic case of low self-control. Like he had the right ideas. He, you know, he always wanted to do the right thing. And he, he talked a big game. You know, he said before Jesus's crucifixion, even if everyone denies you, I will go to my death with you. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and of course then he denies them. Right. So he just didn't have that follow through. And yet, yeah, like you alluded to, like when we catch up to him later, when he's writing his books, the early church, he's this pillar of the church and he's er, like just this fatherly uh, figure urging people to grow in godliness and persevere su in suffering. And I mean, he changed, right? And that's that's good news for me because sometimes I think we think, well, you either have good self-control or you don't, right? I mean, you're either that kind of person that stays in the, the straight and narrow or you're a screw-up. But we see even in the life of Peter, that trajectory from being a total screw-up, low self-control um, to being this awesome pillar of the early church who, according to um, – according to church tradition anyway, ended up being crucified upside down at his request because mm -hmm. he wasn't worthy to die in the same way as his Lord. So man, he changed. And if, if Peter can change, we can too. And how grateful mm. are we that God only gave us heroes and examples to look to that were not marathon runners, but were guys grunting at their second <laughs> time around the block. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to read this. This is this is available everywhere, right? We're just late to the game. Yes, it's everywhere. Target, Walmart, no, uh, not really. But uh, <laughs> it, it is available in a little um, bookstore here we have in the Northwest called Amazon.com. So, yes, okay. it is. Uh, <laughs> you can find it and there for sure. And how can people connect with you and what you're up to and... Uh, kind of stay in the loop on the Drew sure. Dick train. Yes. <laughs> Everyone wants on the Drew Dick train. Yes, of course. Um, well, I guess the easiest way, you know, I, I do have a website. It's just my name, very inventive, Drew Dick. That's D-Y-C-K.com. Uh, and you can drop by there. You can see some stuff about the book. There's an excerpt there. There's also a study guide for free. You can see some cheesy pictures of me with my family. Um, I spend too much time habit i'm still trying to break on uh twitter uh so if you want to connect with me there my handle is just my name again drew dick um yeah and if you're if you're in the northwest i live just 15 minutes uh north of portland oregon uh and and you don't have covid and you don't mind staying like six feet away from me then drop by and and maybe we can go for a walk and grab some coffee nice 
I just may take you up on that invitation when this yes. when this nightmare is over. Yes, when the world, like in 2028, when this is all over, right? <laughs> oh, oh, don't don't say that, please. I know. Don't I'm say sorry. That. Don't even joke. Don't even joke. <laughs> well, it has been a delight, and I just want to thank you again for making time uh, to speak with us today. Our guest again has been Drew Dick, the author of Your Future Self Will Thank You. Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, a guide for sinners, quitters, and procrastinators. All right, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. So good to have that conversation with Drew Dick. So good to be reminded that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is not something that appears magically overnight. It's something that blossoms and matures and grows with time. That's especially good for those of us who are still immature in some areas of self-control. But we can celebrate the growth. We don't need to be living in shame and fear over the fact that our self-control is not yet perfect. In fact, I don't know anybody whose self-control is perfect. But we are growing, growing in grace. Well, we have a little bit of time left. So, and it's been a while since uh, I opened the mailbox on the podcast. So grateful for the letters that uh, you guys send. I thought maybe I'd read a couple. Here's one that came in not long ago from a new pirate monk. He says, I heard Nate on the Pure Desire podcast a while ago, but eventually got his book, read it, loved it, shared it with someone who didn't have time to read it, got it back and read it again. Finally attended a newcomer meeting on Thanksgiving. And I'm looking forward to start plugging into some other online meetings while getting an in-person meeting going here in the great state of Northern Virginia. For reasons of sobriety, I'll have to surrender my laptop to my Pure Desire leader soon, so I can't rely solely on online meetings for the foreseeable future. I've been catching up by listening to the oldest podcasts and working to those more recent, while also cherry-picking a few random ones that caught my eye. I hope Nick Stumbo didn't go back and listen to what you guys were talking about before you brought him on. I don't remember what we were saying. I don't know. It was probably all wrong. doesn't matter. The biggest nugget I've gotten so far has been the song, Samson, You Are Not, by Royal Ruckus. Jamie Bennett gave that to us, a, a tried-and-true veteran pirate monk. He said, I went on, uh, I, it went on daily rotation on YouTube music until I had to delete the app due to relapse. It really encouraged me as the cycle of relapse has become unbearable recently and it's been tough to see a way out. He says, uh, I've also noticed quite a few missing episodes and would like to inquire if we can embrace our pirate side and do a little bootlegging to fill in the gaps. Maybe a search for buried treasure? 
Well, brother, you are certainly fully authorized uh, to pirate uh, any episodes of the Pirate Monk podcast you can find anywhere. Uh, uh, in fact, if anybody can put together a list of missing ep- episodes, uh, we can search through the archives and see what we can recover. And there may be some some old interviews that we need to redo. Uh, so write to us. I'm ready for any feedback. Got quite a bit of mail this week and last week, not just mail, texts, phone calls, people reacting to our episodes, our two episodes on domestic abuse. Uh, This one came in. Let me see. Let me see. Here's one. I don't have the texts with me and I didn't save the voicemails, but uh, I got this, for example. Here's a representative one. I just wanted to thank you for covering this story on your podcast. It was so moving and powerful. I'm so happy to hear that her story had a happy ending. Uh, That was the second episode where we interviewed Becky. I also wanted to thank you for covering this topic as well and for reframing how many traditional or conservative churches need to look at these horrible marital situations. Thank you for speaking up and taking a stand to keep up the great work. Uh, Here's another one, uh, a little more personal, a little more detailed, but uh, let me me read. I'm not going to disclose anybody's identity and won't hit all the details, but... This fellow writes, as painful as it was, I very much appreciate you digging deep into abuse in our most intimate relationships. I say it's painful because I've known since the beginning that my marriage is abusive on some level. But now I have more context and a clinical definition, as well as Becky's story, to help me process the feelings and accept that it actually is happening to me and my children. I've been married for a long time. I can still remember the point at which I saw a huge red flag, but I was not strong enough to act on the information just days before the wedding and call it off at the last minute. The other concept that was a beautiful gift was the talk about divorce and that it is not the unforgivable sin. In fact, it's there to protect people. Additionally, it's helpful to consider that picking up our cross and suffering for the gospel does not necessarily mean tolerating consistent abuse, control, and manipulation. It's also embarrassing for me as a strong man to admit that I'm dominated by my wife and have not been able to lead our family out of this cycle. It's made me feel helpless, crazy, and demoralized for years. Uh, anyway, I've only recently started regaining enough clarity to move in a different direction. I'm finally getting to the point where my theology allows me to consider the possibility that boundaries and consequences are the most loving thing to do to protect myself and our children, even if that leads to separation or worse. All right, uh... By the way, we love it when we get attaboys and you love the guests and you have all kinds of, you know, wonderful, affirming things to say about the guests. We also value uh, critical feedback. So uh, if something just doesn't resonate, you think we've gone in the wrong direction or you just frankly don't like a guest, go ahead and tell us. Uh, Here's one that came in. 
Just wanted to comment as your average opinionated listener. Tullian brought his bullshit box, a term you've all brought up at previous retreats. You know how there can be a salesman who sounds really cheesy or inauthentic and a salesman who is great at his job and comes across as genuine? Well, I felt Tullian that falls into the former category. Don't get me wrong, his story definitely had its ups and downs that touched me in part simply because I went through some similar things. But his responses to his bad times felt more like, look at me, look at what I went through. It was horrible. You should feel sorry for me. And then there was all of that listing of his successful performance metrics, one after another. Finally, what really got on my nerves was his describing his formative years as my parents were perfect, my grandparents were perfect. It was my teachers and pastors and Christianity that let me down. This is a classic addict statement, one that's from one who's either hiding his family's past for a reason or is simply lying to himself on the river of denial. That's fake. It's phony. I can sympathize with a prodigal son story, but I can't sympathize with bullshit when it's being shucked at me. Gosh, brother. Tell me what you really think. No, actually, helpful to get the uh, email. I will tell you this. Um, Aaron and I have varying reactions to our guests. Um, we don't agree with every guest that we bring on. In fact, there's one th There's one interview that we never aired because after, Allie and I, uh, after uh, Aaron and I got done interviewing this pastor, I mean, it was just so... Wrong, so biblically wrong, uh, and so manipulative, and so sick, and just, we just we just said, all right. Even though there were people involved and there were publicists and all kind, we'd been pushed to do it, and we said, there's no way we are not going to publish that uh, episode, and we're not going to give that guy any visibility. All right, uh, I'm sure there were there were other guys who had a different response to Tullian. And his episode, uh, we'd, here's the point. We want to hear from you either way. Uh, because this, uh, otherwise we're just talking into a void and we don't know uh, whether we're connecting, what kind of response we're getting, what's helpful, what isn't. So do us a favor. Uh, when you find the time, drop us a line. You can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail. Dot com. Well, I think that's going to be about it for this week. Thankfully, Aaron is very much on the mend. He'll be back. Uh, so you'll have, you know, the entertaining interchange that only Aaron Porter can bring by the time we have the next episode. But for now, I'm Nate. And I am your pal on the Pirate Monk. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>